title of the talk is how do you conduct a realist synthesis when there is no evidence? And I guess, you know, disclosures first, uh, this project that I'm going to talk about was funded by an IHR. Uh, and I'll explain what PROMs are in a minute. Uh, but of course, the usual disclosures apply. Um, and and IHI, you know, this is not their opinion, it's mine. I also want to acknowledge the brilliant team we had. Uh, it was a big team. So uh, lots of different people from different uh, backgrounds. Um, so very grateful for them. And um, that was that was great. So we have an IHR. The inspiration, I guess, for this talk um, comes from the feedback we got from NIHR when uh, I put in my grant to do a realist synthesis of feedback of patient reported outcome measures. And I will uh, not assume that you all know what those, they are, but I will explain them uh, in due course as the talk goes on. But first, I just wanted to give you some uh, insight. I don't know if any of you have applied for an NIHR funding. You know, you get the email and you, oh, goodness me, what's it going to say? And you have to calm yourself down to, to read the feedback and, you know, remind yourself that it's really not that bad and you can deal with it. Um, but one of the questions that they that, that really interested me uh, that you can see here is, is um, constant, you know, the, the feedback that they wanted to give us was whether researchers will gain sufficient examples of where PROMs have and have not led to improvements for an unbiased formulation of the model. And I think ultimately what this reviewer was saying is, how will you do this realist synthesis when there isn't any or much evidence? Um, because at the time we submitted the grant, while patient reported outcome measures were um, often used in trials um, as indicators of the outcome of an intervention or a treatment, um, there wasn't a lot of evidence of their, of their use as performance data. So it was at the very beginning. So when this project got funded, it was 2014. So I think it was probably about 2012, 2013 when we got this feedback. And the National English National Proms Programme had only been running really since 2010. So this was the use of patient reported outcome measures as indicators of the quality of hospitals. So there was a feeling from the reviewer to say, well, this is a very new intervention. Um, you know, no, nobody's there's no evidence out there about uh, its effectiveness or its impact. How are you going to do this review? Um, and, you know, I chuckled to myself and thought, ah, I know how to answer that question. Um, and I suppose the summary, really, uh, of this talk and what I'm going to sort of elaborate in more detail as we go along is that I think the reviewer was coming, very much coming from a traditional systematic review perspective. So when you're doing a traditional systematic review, a Cochrane review, however you want to, to, to call them. And I have to say also that I think realist reviews are systematic, too, but that's another <laughs> another side discussion. Um, but I'm talking here, I suppose, about sort of Cochrane style reviews. And in those kind of reviews, the unit of analysis is the intervention itself. It's the program. It's the intervention. And so evidence synthesis really does rely on there being uh, evidence trials that have evaluated that specific intervention. So it really is a problem if there aren't many trials available, or if there isn't any cohort studies or quasi experimental studies of the of the intervention. You really do have a problem uh, if there's not any uh, any evidence. And that's why, you know, NIHR wisely require people to do some scoping work to look at the volume of evidence before they submit a grant. Now, realist reviews are different. Um, 
real, one of the fundamental differences uh, between realist reviews and what I call traditional systematic reviews is the unit of analysis. And the unit of analysis in realist reviews is the programme theory. Now, I'm sure you'll have heard Jeff talking about this uh, at some point over the next two days. And I am going to elaborate a little bit more about what I mean by programme theory, but just um, go with me here. So evidence synthesis relies on the evaluation of interventions sharing the same programme theory. So it's the programme theory that you're testing, that you're evaluating, not the intervention itself. Now, this is quite a big thing to get your head around. I'm not expecting you to automatically go, oh, right, yeah, I get it. But I do hope that during the talk it will be made clearer. And I think one of the things to say here is that different interventions can share the same programme theory. <laughs> but at the same time, the same intervention can have a number of different programme theories underlying it. Uh, this sounds confusing, but it's also one of the great things about realist methods is that they can be flexible. So just because there isn't any evidence about PROM specifically, um, I think you'll find that the programme theories underlying PROMs and, and their feedback and their use as a, an indicator of hospital quality um, is not that new. It's certainly not as new as, uh, as PROMs are themselves. There are lots of other in interventions that share that same programme theory. So, you know, th this is a really important and fundamental difference, I think, which is sort of the basis of this talk about the difference between a realist review and a traditional systematic review. I would say, however, that there are many similarities, and one of those includes the requirement to read lots of papers. <laughs> so that doesn't change. Uh, there are some uh, similarities there. Um, but just before I dive into sort of talk a little bit more about the realist synthesis, I'm I'm not making the assumption that you all know what PROMs are. Um, and for many people, when they hear, hear the word PROMs, they think of something that uh, year 11 and year 13 students do at the end of their school year to celebrate, as many of them are about to do at the moment. Um, but but. My my version of PROMS is it's short for patient reported outcome measures. And these are questionnaires that measure patients' perceptions of the impact of their condition and its treatment on their health. Um, they, they're structured. They ask patients to rate their health on various different dimensions. So the example you can see here is from the Oxford HIP score, which was developed in Oxford. Uh, and they can be generic. That is, they apply to anybody. So there are PROMs like the SF36, which some of you may have heard of, which are suitable for people with a variety of conditions and also people that don't have any health problems as well. Or they can be specifically focused on looking at the impact of a specific condition. So in the case of the Oxford HIP score, this is a condition specific PROM looking at the impact of um, arthritis uh, uh, on, on people's hips. And uh, it's usually used to evaluate um, hip operations, which is part of the English PROMS programme, which I'll explain in a minute. But the big idea about PROMS is that they sort of capture and quantify the patient's perspective um, on their health and their condition. And, you know, when they were first developed, they were largely used as, as I said before, outcome measures in, in trials of different treatments. But more recently, there's been a, a use of them uh, in the health service in two different ways. So, the main way, well, not the main way, but the, the, the focus of this talk is their use at what I call an aggregate level. So this is where data patients are asked. So, for example, in the English National Proms Programme here, um, anybody that's undergoing either a knee replacement or a hip replacement is asked to complete a baseline uh, patient reported outcome measure. 
there's a condition specific one for hips and one for knees, both developed in Oxford. So they're, they're, that data is collected before the procedure. And then I think it's either six months or three months, depending on the condition, uh, they complete it again. Those data are adjusted for case mix and the change that people experience from before the uh, hip replacement or the knee replacement and after the knee replacement is aggregated at hospital level. So each hospital has a, an, a case mix adjusted average change in the um, hip or knee uh, outcome score for patients. And this is used as an indicator of the amount of health gain, I guess, that patients have gained from going through that procedure and is used as an indicator of the quality of care in that hospital. They're also used at an individual level. Um, our synthesis looked at this as well, but I'm not going to really talk about this um, for now, but just to provide a bit more context. At an individual level, patients perhaps might complete a prom before they go and visit the clinician. This is fed back to the clinician during the visit. The idea is this, this enables patients to raise issues with clinicians or it helps clinicians understand what's going on for the patient. And, and there's a number of international examples. But as I mentioned for, for this talk, what we were interested in was understanding how and why uh, PROMS data at an aggregate level might improve patient care through what mechanisms, how will context affect that, what are the, what are the outcomes. And this is the data offered that, that, that uh, providers are presented with. So each of those little dots on, on what's known as a funnel plot, um, it's the mean post-operative Oxford HIP score against the provider sample size. So the number of procedures where there's an expectation that perhaps centres that do more procedures might be um, it might be slightly better at it, but uh, there's 95% and 99% confidence intervals. And, and if your hospital is one of the dots that's outside of these cons cons confidence intervals, you're labelled as an outlier. So really what you want to be is somewhere, I think you can see my cursor is somewhere up here. These are positive outliers, so they're doing almost like better than is expected. These ones are what's known as negative outliers, so labelled as, as hospitals. They're not doing as well as, as they're expected. Um, so, you know, what are providers supposed to do with this information? It was one of the things that we were really interested. How is this supposed to incentivize, create? How do responders, providers respond to this? You know, what are the mechanisms through this might work? And, you know, how, how will context affect this? How does that you know, perhaps the features of the intervention or the context into which it's implemented. These are all very realist questions, as you will have gathered from from Jeff. So it's also interesting to note that the, an interesting contextual feature about PROMS was that they were incentivized as part of local sequin payments for for particular years. Um, they're not they're not so now. So you can see this is quite a complex intervention requiring a lot of, um, I suppose, interpretation. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we were really interested in is, well, you know, when this was set up, what were the ideas and assumptions underlying how this was supposed to work? And in fact, this was partly why Nick Black, we were very privileged to have him on our team. Uh, he was instrumental in setting up the National Proms Programme. And one of the reasons he joined the project was because he was really interested uh, in, in thinking about, you know, what are the underlying, why did we set this up in the first place, which was which was very interesting. So, now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the process that we did this and, and also illustrate a methodological point as I do so um, about the importance of programme theory uh, and how that's used as a unit of analysis um, in, in this context. But just as a quick reminder, and I'm not sure 
where on your realist journey you are, whether Jeff's talked you through the process of doing a realist synthesis. But I just thought I'd provide a really quick slide here. I'm not going to go into detail as to every single one of these um, processes, but I'm just going to give you an overview and then talk to a couple of these issues to illustrate um, the idea about uh, program theory um, and um, how you can use that as a unit of analysis and use evidence from interventions that share the same program theory to, to do your analysis. So the basic idea is that the first sort of process of doing a really synthesis is you need to um, get an understanding of the program theory, the ideas and assumptions. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about program theory in a minute. Um, as Jeff mentioned, you can't often look at everything in a real synthesis. You have to be focused. Um, you have to decide which theories are we going to test? Are we going to jettison some? Are we going to focus on particular ones? Again, that's um, that's an important decision and, and often a difficult one. Um, and then there's a second, sorry, second phase of, of searching. Um, and it's different to the first phase. The first phase is much more interested in program theory. So you look at different sorts of evidence and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Then the second phase, you're looking for empirical evidence in order to test your program theories. Uh, there's quality appraisal. Uh, and again, this is different to a standard, uh, you know, systematic review or Cochrane review. So you're not uh, selecting studies or appraising quality against a hierarchy of evidence where randomized control trials sit at the top. It's more about the, the study's relevance to testing your theory. So a whole range of different study designs are used. You know, quantitative studies are really good for uh, looking at outcome patterns and perhaps the relationships that outcomes might have with context. Qualitative studies are really useful for looking at mechanisms and perhaps some links between particular contexts giving rise to particular mechanisms. So what one of the strengths, I think, of realist synthesis is that you use different study designs uh, and their their importance and their their inclusion is based on their theory testing potential, not about whether they're an RCT or not. Uh, then there's a process of data extraction. I'm not going to go into detail about this. Very happy to share our data extraction with you, but um, I'm going to talk more sort of the, an abstract level, I suppose. Um, but again, you know, this is not necessarily to a strict standard matrix. You know, I've done Cochrane reviews and, and used a, a, a an Excel spreadsheet. When I do um, realist reviews, I tend to use Word documents and do much more of a narrative commentary and then, you know, synthesize it in Word tables. But anyway, and then there's a process of synthesizers, which is where you're bringing your program theories into conversation with various different process of empirical evidence. And then there's this dissemination, this production of abstract middle range theory. And that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about, much more about the sort of middle range uh, program theory. So that's just a quick overview. So I want to go back to this idea of program theory, which I've been sort of banding about with, uh, <laughs> you know, with gay abandon without thinking about and explaining what it is, which is uh, which must be frustrating. So and this was one of the first questions I, I remember when I first met Ray, oh, I don't know, a long time ago when I was um, putting in a, an NIHR fellowship, actually a personal one, which I didn't get, um, but everything worked out anyway. Um, and I was like, well, what is a program theory? What do you mean? Uh, you know, and at the time I was saying, well, is it just sort of psychological or sociological theory? And he was like, well, it can be, but actually it's, some, it's often more simple than that. It's, you know, what, what are the ideas and assumptions underlying how this intervention will work? What are, what's, what, what was going on in the policymakers' heads 
when they developed this intervention to to think about how it was going to work and really think about how things work in particular ways. So you will have heard Jeff talk about this idea of mechanisms. So how are the various recipients or the stakeholders involved in the intervention intended to respond to the resources that are offered by the intervention? Um, and how, you know, how will context shape that? And I think what we find often is that interventions are often developed in almost like a context-free way. There's an assumption often that they're going to work the same way everywhere. You know, we do this and pool by magic, something happens. And I think sometimes also those, those ideas and assumptions are deemed to be so obvious that they're not spelled out. But I think one of the things that we have to do when we're thinking as a realist is really interrogate that. And I think this was what attracted Nick Black to the project. He was saying, I'm not sure we've done that yet with proms. So, so that was interesting. And I think when you're first developing your program theory ideas, as I'll, I'll illustrate when I talk about how we did this in the project, they often stay very close at the beginning to the particular program. So how is this program supposed to work? How are people supposed to respond? But once you've done that, you'll then find actually those ideas are not new. They're very similar to something else I've heard of or another intervention that's got the same ideas. And I guess this is the other picture that I really like that that uh, that we did uh, as part of the Ramesses project. One of the great joys of that project was working with a cartoonist who also was an evaluator. I mean, what are the chances of finding somebody with that skill set? But happily, they exist and they did these wonderful cartoons for us. They're called Chris Lissy and he was absolutely brilliant. Um, and he developed these great cartoons. And these this is what I think like about this one is that they show that, you know, often there are some very general and abstract and very familiar ideas underlying all the things we do. And, you know, some people would argue, actually, all the interventions that we, anybody ever does just, you know, can be uh, narrowed down to whether they're a carrot, a stick or a sermon. Um, you know, so, you know, carrots are things like, you know, reward stickers for children at school to financial incentives for GPs to do particular tests. You know, they all share this sort of idea of an incentive. Similarly, you know, sticks are behavior points that children get at school or sanctions that people get for not following the rules. Similarly, all sorts of teaching uh, is providing people with information training equivalent to being a sermon. And, and Paulson calls these sort of, you know, these this idea that many interventions share the same underlying ideas and assumptions as reusable conceptual platforms. And we really kind of tried to embrace this idea as we as we did the as we did the review. So when we were beginning this review, we, we really, as I mentioned before, stuck quite closely to the idea of, you know, what are the underlying ideas about how the aggregate use of PROMS data is going to improve care? And we drew on various different policy documents, editorials, think pieces, letters. So this was a, a study. It wasn't a study. It was a more like a, an extended review of the literature that was undertaken by uh, Nancy Devlin and John Appleby at the King's Fund. Um, there's also guidance that the NHS issued about how PROMS data should be collected and how providers should respond to it, the steps they should take if they're an outlier. Um, again, methodological guidance as well. You know, how how are these outliers identified, but also kind of editorials and analysis by particularly this one by Nick Black, where various commentators set out 
you know, this is how I think this intervention is going to work. And, and what's really interesting are the kind of sometimes editors set up these debate articles, don't they, where they one person's arguing one side and another person's arguing another. So these are really rich uh, opportunities for getting at those underlying ideas about, well, how is it that proms are supposed to work? Um, and I know, Jeff, when you were doing the um, smoking cars carrying children's uh, review with uh, uh, Ray, and the, you wrote a really nice paper about how the Today programme on Radio 4 is a really interesting sort of programme theories as well, because there's that debate about how this, this programme is supposed to work. We also did a stakeholder workshop where we presented some of these ideas to stakeholders and said, what do you think? You know, is there anything we've missed? What does this really mean? I also did a few interviews with various stakeholders uh, as well. So we really tried to sort of get, get a feel for what, what are the underlying ideas. Um, and this revealed, I guess, we narrowed it down after a long iterative process uh, into three sort of main ideas. So the first one, uh, and, you know, if you think back, this was, you know, the PROMS program did emerge from the Darzai report, who, have, who was very interested in patient choice. So one of the ideas behind the aggregate use of PROMS was that um, they were useful to evaluate the relative clinical quality providers of elective procedures because hip and knee replacements uh, were elective. And it can be used by patients and GPs exercising choice. In other words, the idea was by presenting these data on PROMS, on the outcomes, and the different um, providers and where they stood in relation to each other. This could be used by GPs and patients in choosing where to have their hip operation and where to have their knee operation. So it was, you know, it was sort of in the context of the, the policy at the time, which was very big on expanding and supporting patient choice in the NHS. Another key, so we sort of called, called this choice theory. Um, another key idea was this idea that you know, aggregate promise data can be used to empower clinicians. You can see how old this is because they talk about PCTs who are now, of course, CCGs and now, you know, integrated care systems, um, that they can use the data to establish the quality of services which they are contracting providers for. In other words, they can hold providers accountable for the quality of the services that they are providing. So commissioners can use these data to say, actually, you know, you said you were going to provide this service. This is the quality. You know, this we're not happy with this or they can presumably impose sanctions or reward it, for example, with sequin payments. And then another idea was that PROMS would be useful for assessing the relative clinical quality of providers of elective procedures for clinicians, managers and commissioners to benchmark their own performance. And uh, I, I remember asking one of the uh, persons in the Department of Health about this. And I said, well, what do you think clinicians uh, you know, how do you think surgeons or clinicians should respond to these data? And they said, well, what I hope they'll do is they'll go, oh, the hospital down the road is doing a really good job. How can we learn from them? Can I go and talk to them? So the, it's very much the idea of this intrinsic motivation that providers might have to improve their own practice, to learn from others. So you can see these are sort of three different ideas underlying the use of PROMS. And this is where we sort of started our synthesis from. And then we we sat down, the three of us. I'm not very good at drawing, so I did stick people. Um, me, uh, Sonia Dolkin, who was the research fellow on the project and, and, and was great to work with, and, and Ray, who was sort of an advisor with us. You know, what is this? What is this an example of? These sound quite familiar um, ideas that many other interventions also share these ideas. So we tried to think about what 
what were these similarities? So, you know, one of the specific theories was patients will choose proms, will use proms to choose a provider, um, which is very reminiscent of, you know, patient choice theory, this idea, you know, many other interventions were underpinned by this, this idea of, of promoting patient choice. And then there were other also quality data initiatives that were also underpinned by this idea, such as mortality report cards in the US, patient experience data as well, various different forms of hospital performance data, and also the, the My NHS website, which was also set up with the intent of providing patients with, with these data. Similarly, this idea of POMS will enable commissioners to hold uh, providers to account. Again, there were similar other other interventions that sh share this idea. So this idea of a accountability, public disclosure, you know, we can see in CQC inspections, quality accounts that hospitals have to produce. And again, this my NHS website. And then this idea of this intrinsic motivation that uh, clinicians want to improve their practice and learn from each other and they will take action if they perceive that they're better or worse than their colleagues. Again, shared ideas with benchmarking, audit and feedback ideas um, and similar other interventions also shared these ideas such as clinical audits as the NHS Benchmarking Club. So far from there being, um, you know, Problems being this sort of singular, unique intervention that had a particular set of program theories. When we looked at that, we actually saw that actually there's lots of other interventions using quality data that share these similar ideas. And so we could draw on that evidence in our review uh, to test our theories. Um, and also the other thing that we we explored was, OK, well, what are the intended? And I'm sure Jeff has mentioned this, that. It context shapes the ways in which in interventions are implemented, how people respond. And sometimes interventions have a set of unintended consequences, but they also might have a set of unintended consequences. And we could draw on this literature, this knowledge to to help us think about, well, what might we look for when we're synthesizing this evidence? What might we expect to find? What's going on? So in terms of the intended consequence of the patient choice idea, the idea was that patients would use these data to choose high performing providers. And consequently, the lower performing providers might respond by improving their care in order to attract more patients. That's how it was intended to work. But actually, one of the, you know, it can always go wrong. One of the unintended consequences might be that patients are not even aware of these data or that clinicians might refuse to treat sicker patients because they don't want those patients to bring down their average score because they don't improve as much. In terms of accountability, stakeholders might impose sanctions or offer rewards and, and this in turn was expected to, to, to you know, stimulate providers to either maintain the good, good care that they provided or improve it. However, um, you know, the, many commentators talked about uh, concerns that actually if you focus, you know, if you if you um, focus on particular indicators, this might actually result in what's known as tunnel vision. And that is exclusive focus on what is measured to the exclusion of other areas of care. All providers might gain the data in terms of benchmarking providers. You know, the idea was compilers would compare themselves to their peers and take steps to improve if they're, they're below average. But actually, one of the unintended consequences might be that providers don't even understand the data or they might dismiss or ignore it. So there were all these different possible outcomes. And I think that's another thing that, that you know, working with Ray is always keen to emphasize is that 
interventions don't just produce one outcome. They produce a whole range of different possible outcomes. Some of these are intended. Some of them are in, unintended. Um, and context often has a big role in shaping <laughs> whether the intervention produces the intended or the unintended ones. So we also try to think, well, what are the kind of, you know, from the literature, what are the also what are the important contextual features that might play a role? Um, and this suggested that whether there are any you know existing concurrent incentives or sanctions associated with the the intervention itself, um, and the credibility of, of the data, whether whether providers take the data seriously, which raised the question of well, what features might support or constrain this, and also the actionability of the data. How how easy is it for providers to act on it? Let me see. So these are some of the examples. As you can see, I'm not going to go into these in great detail, but they give you a flavour of we drew on evidence from many different kinds of interventions that shared the same uh, underlying programme theories from clinical audits to the cardiac surgery reports in the US. Audit, uh, clinical audit, patient experience, plus some patients, some older indicators that were used in the UK. And for those of you that like prisma diagrams, uh, here's a prisma. What, what, the one thing I want you to take from this is how messy it is compared to, say, a prisma diagram of, as of a traditional systematic review. You can see we did lots of different searches. There was lots of ins and outs. There was large numbers of screening involved. Um, and basically, it was a very messy and complex process. So it's not as uh, simple that you do one search, you have a set of criteria, you, you, you select them. It was much more iterative than that. And I guess if you take one thing from this rather messy and difficult to read slide is that it was a messy process. I'll also talk a little bit about context. I've mentioned this a little bit as well, and this was a really important sort of thing to help us to think about it. Um, and, and this is the idea that interventions might work differently in different contexts, that you implement them in different contexts, you end up with different outcomes. Um, and I suppose the context, you know, Anna and I have, uh, recently wrote a paper on context where we really thought about that, inspired by the work that we did on the Ramesses project. And I guess part of context might, you know, for this project, we, we interpreted it quite broadly and thought about, well, also, what about the intervention features in terms of how, you know, the intervention was implemented? Is that part of the intervention resources or is it part of context? It might be both. Um, but it's this idea that context shapes the way that the intervention works, but also this idea that context doesn't necessarily come in neat little packages. Um, you know, when 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 programs are implemented, they're implemented into messy um into messy contexts, into messy uh, hospitals where there's lots of other stuff going on. They're having to compete with all sorts of different things. And it was this idea that, you know, as you get more contextual features involved, the outcomes that you might find are much more complex. And so we tried to get our heads around what the characteristics of the different um, interventions that we were looking at in terms of context and looked at the different outcome patterns that we found there. So to go back to all of the different evidence, all of these different um, interventions had different characteristics that we then tried to map and think about how they related to the kind of contextual features that we might be important. And then we, we sort of grouped the studies relating to each particular intervention uh, to find out, well, how did people respond? What, you know, we looked at qualitative studies about a surgeon's opinions or surgeon's ideas and, and feelings about the, about the um, intervention, but also some of the quantitative studies looking at the outcome data to say, well, did things actually change? Did outcomes improve? 
So just to give you an idea about how we did this, we set up some propositions in relation to our program theories uh, to, to try and understand how different contextual features might uh, make a difference. Um, and you can see that we drew on, as I mentioned before, what we were testing was the program theory. So we drew on evidence from a whole range of these different interventions that shared these same underlying program theories. But we looked at the different contextual features. So a key important one was whether the data are publicly reported. Do, does the public have access to them or not? Um, you know, it was reminiscent of uh, kind of this naming and shaming idea um, in terms of whether this idea of people were, were supposed to respond because they've been outed as a bad, a poor provider, and also whether they had any sanctions uh, or incentives attached to them. And we looked at a number of different um, Interventions, the crag, crag indicators were something that was uh, implemented in Scotland a long time ago. They were not publicly reported. There were no sanctions uh, attached to them. Uh, when we looked at the data and when we looked at the studies, what we found was that clinicians just ignored the data. There was absolutely no change to patient care. They had no impact whatsoever. Similarly, uh, for you know, there was a couple of studies looking at these hypothetical indicators based on national serving frameworks, similar outcome pattern. They were not publicly reported and there were no sanctions. Um, what happened was that the data was ignored. There was absolutely no changes to patient care. So it made no difference to patient care. We looked at the star ratings. These were publicly reported. These were something that um, was, I think, around in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, associated with the national sort of service framework. Um, we looked at studies that was carried out by uh, Russell Mannion and colleagues. And what happened here was that the providers just, you know, if they were a poor or an outlier or a poor provider, they dismissed the credibility of the data. They said, we don't believe that. We're not, you know, they, these data do not summarise. They do not represent our hospital. And there was some evidence that what happened is that the providers focused on, um, you know, changing care uh, in relation to uh, particular indicators or changing care so that they could tick the boxes rather than actually Im improving the care. Similarly, we looked at the quality and outcomes framework and found a similar pattern in terms of, you know, the public reports. They were there were sanctions, but again, they t they tended to lead to, to tunnel vision, such that the data, the indicators that were measured improved, but but the other ones didn't. The, in general, the care didn't. So this begins to give some idea about, uh, you know, some of the patterns in terms of some of the contextual features and some of the findings. And then we add an, we added another layer of context. So if you go think back to the, uh, the 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 slide I had with the contextual features, you know, in addition to whether the data were public reported and sanctions were received, we were also interested in well, you know, one of the things that seemed to be important was whether providers trusted the credibility, whether they found the data credible. This begged the question of what influences credibility. And uh, some of our reading suggested that one of the things that might influence credibility was whether clinicians were involved in setting up um, the measurement system or not. And also whether the data was the quality of the data. So an indicator of that quality we took to be whether the data were collected from patient notes. Uh, you know, in terms of they accurately reflected patient activity or whether they were gained from billing data. And again, we looked at a number of different initiatives. Most of some of these, the, the CHOP reports were um, uh, mortality report cards in cardiac surgery that were 
um, implemented in California. A similar scheme was implemented in New York, but it, but it had some important differences, as you, as you can see. They were both publicly reported and they had sanctions um, about them. But in contrast to the California one, the uh, New York one was had a lot of clinician involvement and also it was based on patient data, not on billing data. And we found a slightly different outcome in response to those. Uh, the CHOP reports, the, the, there were few quality improvement initi initiatives initiated on those and clinicians tended to dismiss the credibility of the data. Whereas in contrast in the New York one, there was much greater acceptance of the data, but still not that many quality improvement initiatives. The JCHAO is, is like the American version of our Quality Care Commission. And they had a number of incentives that they wanted to implement again, but they were not clinician led. They were based on billing data. And again, a similar outcome to, to other forms of um, uh, patient report data found previously where you just had incentives of public report, it tended to leave to just focus on, on the indicators and not thinking about the, the more global things about patient care. And again, similarly with GP patient experience data, which was uh, implemented in England, um, what we found was that providers tended to dismiss the credibility of the data. They didn't believe the credibility. However, we also found a small number of studies um, that were exploring quality improvement, sort of quality collaboratives that were set up by clinicians themselves. They had a lot of clinician involvement um, from the clinicians. And what we found there was that that data was accepted by the clinicians. Uh, and there was some quality improvement initiatives initiated on the back of that. So how did we make sense of this? Looking across all those outcome patterns and looking at those contexts, what we what we found was that, you know, externally mandated data was perceived as being driven by political motives. The data was questioned because it, it was perceived as measuring what's important to clinicians and regulator, not sorry, uh, politicians and regulators, not the clinicians. So the, the clinicians didn't trust it and they uh, didn't tend to respond to it. The public reporting of these data, especially if there were sanctions, you know, it could lead to tunnel vision or at worst gaming to protect providers' reputation in the eyes of regulators or other responsible bodies. Um, and I think what we found from looking at the, the, the studies was that externally mandated data didn't always enable providers to identify the causes of poor care. So it might signal that they were outliers, but it didn't always tell them why. So it was very difficult for them to, to act on it. In contrast, internally connected data that was either clinician led or professionally led um, was much more accepted by clinicians. They they perceived it as a as being based on a desire to improve patient care rather than just ticking boxes. And also because they had a say in specifying the indicators, it was perceived, it was felt to be uh, measuring what was important to clinicians. So it has a much more credibility. And because they had a stake in, in specifying the indicators, they found it was much harder to dismiss or ignore. So there's much more pressure to act on it. And they were motivated to respond to protect their, their reputation in the eyes of their peers, <laughs> which was a very an, an interesting motiv motivator. Um, and they also found that actually this in internally collected data was really useful um, in telling them what was going on. So ov obviously externally mandated indicators wouldn't tell them what was going on, whereas this internal data that was often generated um, by clinicians was able to pin much better pinpoint the causes of poor care. However, 
it still depended on the resources and capacity, collect the data and then to, to act on it. So it wasn't the end of the story. But what this enabled us to do was identify some sort of CMO patterns, I guess, which explained these patterns that we observed in terms of contextual features about whether the use of quality data did uh, motivate or, or uh, lead to clinicians improving care or not. Um, and so, well, how does this relate to PROMS? We can then sort of, in, in a way, go back down the ladder of, of, uh, of abstraction and think about patient uh, reported data in terms of these features that we found. Um, and, it, you know, PROMS, yes, they are, in theory, they're publicly reported, although you often have to look quite hard to find it and they're not, uh, you know, they are available on a database, but it's whether uh, patients know how to find them. Yes, there are sometimes incentives attached to them. They, there wasn't a great deal of, certainly not in the English National Proms Programme, although the, the National College of Surgeons were involved in it, local clinicians not necessarily. And the data are placed on subjective reports. And when we looked at the evidence, the, the few studies, as you recall, there was only about four studies at the time. Um, you know, we found that actually evidence that providers tended to dismiss the quality of the data rather, not necessarily because it was uh, based on billing data, but this time because it was based on patients reporting and they were a little bit sceptical about uh, patients reports and their own opinions about the improvements that patients might have uh, experienced in surgery. And there is very little evidence that certainly in the early days that this had resulted, that the PROMS programme has actually resulted in an improvement in any or change in any patient outcomes. So to go back, and this is my sort of last slide, really, to answer the question of how can you do a really synthesis when there isn't any evidence? The answer is that in a really synthesis, the unit of analysis is the program theory, not the intervention itself. So you can test your program theories against evidence of interventions that share the same program theory. And as you can see in this example, we uh, tested our theories uh, in relation to evidence from a range of interventions, uh, clinical audits, patient experience data, mortality report cards that shared the same underlying program theories. And we came up with uh, a number of CMO configurations to explain the patterns that we observed in the data. Um, and quantitative studies are really useful for looking at these context outcome patterns, but also qualitative studies are useful for thinking about the mechanisms and how people respond. So putting all of that together, it's like doing a big jigsaw puzzle because you don't often find a perfect test of your CMO configuration in any particular study. But one of the things that we did and um, of assembling the, the data in the way that we did, you know, in terms of those um, tables where we had contextual features and the findings that enabled us to think about and compare and contrast and come up with some explanations to explain those theories. And if you want to read any more information, we've we've published a few uh, studies and there's also a, an NIHR journals library report, but that's very long. So you have to have had a good cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit if you want to read it. But thank you. That's the end of my talk.